Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Romance in Marseille by Claude McKay and pairing it with contemporary literature. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Good. I feel like it's been a while since we've talked about a more under-the-radar classic, and I'm looking forward to unpacking Romance in Marseille with you today. Me too. The introduction in the Penguin Classics edition, which I think is the only edition, right, because this was uncovered and published um, just a few years ago, and, or was that last, no, I think it was published with There is Confusion, like, on the same day as that one. Mm -hmm. Um, but 2020. So yeah, it was published, republished in 2020. So if it's part of this weird yeah, so time like warp one where it's like, oh yeah, year last ago. year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a lot of fun sort of digging into the introductory material of this one. It was very dense. I mean, in a, mm-hmm. in a good way. And also just reading a couple of articles about Claude McKay and about this specific book, um, we'll link to a couple that we have on our notes here, but I, I thought it, it was just really interesting. The common thread seemed to be, Hey, this is a really exciting classic that's now being published, but it's very modern. Everybody, you'll (laughs) almost think it's contemporary. Um, and so I want to, jump in with that Sarah when you read this did you feel like it was contemporary and modern like everyone was saying in the articles and introduction the way it was kind of sold yes and no I think that um I think that Claude McKay's language is very like of its time which is not to say dated um because I don't think of Harlem Renaissance texts like like passing to be to have really dated language that's hard to sift through um but it but it felt it felt of its moment um in its the way it evoked the senses and all that we can talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit more but character wise and plot wise it did feel very modern to me it felt modern in the way it like dropped you in the story right away like no not a lot of setup or backstory. We're just, we're right, right in it. The intersectionality of the characters and how important that theme was to the text felt super modern. So, so yes, it did. I'm not sure, you know, one of the the articles um, that we're referring to here is basically like, if you skip the introduction and just started reading, you'd think this book was just written last year and I don't know if I'd go that far yeah but a lot of it did feel very modern how about how about to you yeah I think uh text wise it reads like a classic I actually think plot wise in some ways it reads like a classic too um the descriptions are lush and beautiful and I'm sure we'll get to a couple I do want to read the opening lines because I feel like the opening lines you read and it's very classic feeling to me um and 
all of the themes in this novel, I feel like are touched on in many Harlem Renaissance classics. Um, disability and sex and sexuality and um, slavery and post-colonialism and capitalism and Marxism and gender and all of that. I think those topics are addressed in subtext in many novels. I think this one is extremely modern in the way that it very openly addresses all of these topics and themes. It's very um, upfront in the characters' identities. There isn't, um, like, their sexualities aren't hidden or hinted at. It's very just on the page. The philosophies that are discussed in the book are literally discussed in the book from the characters' mouths uh, in dialogue. And I think that that's part of what makes it so modern feeling is that a lot of this isn't hidden in subtext or it isn't, you know, we're not decoding things beneath the pages. It's all there on the page. So that's what felt modern to me. But I think anyone picking this up would be like, yeah, this is a classic, <laughs> just the way that it reads. Yeah, completely. Especially if if you've read other Harlem Renaissance texts, because it, like you said, it does feel very situated in the themes of that particular literary movement and time period. I, I think that you make a really good point about sort of the openness, almost obviousness of some of what McKay is doing here being more contemporary. And yeah, I'll be interested to get into that idea of the the plot with you because I think I particularly agree when it comes to the end of this novel. And we are going to discuss plot points. Um, we'll give spoiler warnings as we get into specific plot points. But the end felt like such a classic tragedy to mm -hmm. me. But the beginning of the book and the setup felt a little bit more... Um, just just different to me than anything else I've I've read. So it was a really interesting marriage of some classic plot construction and then um, insertion of spe specifics that not surprised me because I had because I read the introduction, but yeah <laughs> um, but that I had never seen in classic lit before and haven't seen in many contemporary books either. Yeah, I agree. And so the other thing, um, you mentioned the introduction, It like you read the introduction, you know the plot. There was a spoiler alert at the front of this yeah. book, and I've never seen that in any I other classic. I think that's classics. great. Yeah. It says, new readers are advised that this introduction makes details of the plot explicit. And I, yeah. I found that really charming. <laughs> I Okay, here's what I love so much about that. I feel like the these new Penguin classics are marketing themselves to real readers instead of academics. And yeah. so the type of introduction that you have here is so common in like a Norton critical edition. Yeah. And, you know, as a as a scholar or a student, you go in and you know that the introduction is going to to do that, but as as just like a real reader, you know, you might not be thinking that. So, anyways, good job Penguin Classics. <laughs> I love that. Keep doing that. <laughs> Okay, so we will get into maybe our general personal thoughts on this book, but I just want to read 
the opening sentence, which like you said, just drops us right into the story and introduces us to our main character right away. And then um, just a couple of paragraphs later so that we can sort of read the poetic rhythm of Claude McKay's writing. So the first sentence, chapter one, in the main ward of the great hospital, La Fala lay like a sawed off stump and pondered the loss of his legs. Now more vividly than ever in his life, he visualized the glory and the joy of having a handsome pair of legs. And then there's this paragraphs of description of him reminiscing about his legs and all that he used to do. Uh, and then just this other passage that I wanted to highlight Legs of ebony, legs of copper, legs of ivory, moving pell-mell in columns against his imagination. Dancing on the toes, dancing on the heels, dancing flat-footed. Lafala's dancing legs had carried him from Africa to Europe, from Europe to America. Mm. It's just, I mean, it, like I said, reads like a classic. Like, those mm -hmm. sentences mm -hmm. are what you read and go like, oh, Claude McKay, one of the greats, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and feels, again, very situated in the Harlem Renaissance. I That that line that you read with all of the colors, it just it so reminded me of the Langston Hughes poem, Harlem Sweeties, mm. and I just, I, I loved it. And, you know, I, I do think that, you know, one of the things that some of the articles we discussed argues is that, it's rare for classics to be so much about like bodies and this book is mm -hmm. so much about the body. And, you know, I, I think I more agree with you that this book is like explicitly about bodies in the way that maybe some other classics are more implicitly about. But I love the way that he he drops you into the plot immediately, but also into some of those themes immediately where he's talking about what his body used to be capable of and the colors of bodies and also into the themes of migration and post-colonialism with where his legs have taken him up until this point mm -hmm. in his, his life. It's just, it's really um, efficient writing, but still feels leisurely, which is just so, so special, I think. Yeah, so just historical context-wise, Claude McKay and just where he fits in with some of these other Harlem Renaissance books that we've read, Claude McKay's book Home to Harlem, I believe, was his first novel, and that was considered like one of the first novels of the Harlem Renaissance movement. And so when we talk about Claude McKay, I feel like he's not necessarily, you know, in the general public um, consciousness, I feel like he's not one of the big names that we recognize compared to, you know, Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm. um, but he's really one of the big ones and mm -hmm. was working to shape the Harlem Renaissance. And was he is interesting because he was pushing back on a lot of ideas and philosophies as well. Um, I think with this book, you can see, you know, he's he's not catering to the white gaze in this book. Um, like a lot of Harlem Renaissance literature sometimes had to, um, why they had to be more implicit about some themes. Uh, he is not doing that in this book. Uh, and, you know, he couldn't get it published at the time <laughs> yeah. because yeah. of that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I just I think that 
that history is really interesting. I think this book, you can read it and situate it in history so easily just because of all of the ideas that he is explicitly bringing up, like the Back to Africa movement is mentioned countless times in many chapters. Um, And yeah, I just, it feels, because of that, it feels so of its time, um, despite the modern themes. Yes. And I, I really appreciated the way the introduction made, made clear and really wanted readers to, to be aware of, like, this isn't a rediscovering of this classic by a major publishing house that's mostly comprised of, of white employees, right? Like, like particularly black scholars and scholars of the Harlem Renaissance have known about this text and studied it and written about it for you know decades. And so I think I think that's really an important point too that like this this book wasn't lost. It's just that the mainstream wasn't looking at it for for a long time. I so I will say just my personal thoughts and impressions. We haven't really addressed yeah. those yet. I I wish that I could read this book in a post-colonial lit class because Mm -hmm. I did feel that it is a scholarly reading experience. I didn't necessarily just enjoy it, enjoy reading it for reading's sake. Like Mm -hmm. I have some other books like Passing or like There's Confusion. I, I enjoyed this definitely with more of the literature scholar mind. And maybe part of that is the introductions very scholarly sets sort of the pace for that as you're reading. Um, But I thought another part of it was, while I did really love the descriptive language that McKay is using, and any time that we were just in the narrator's voice telling stories, I loved that. I found the dialogue really stilted. Um, yes, I didn't. The dialogue really took me out of the story. And I actually, to be honest, skimmed a lot of it to like get I want to get back to the good writing. Yes. Um, and the characters, I mean, they're fascinating. But I, I don't know. The follow felt really real to me, but I don't know that the rest of the characters that populated the novel felt as as real to me as he did Mm -hmm. so but it's mostly the dialogue Mm -hmm. I completely agree I will say I went back and forth between the paper book and the audio and the audio book is read by Dion Graham who is one of I love Dion Graham yes he is one of my favorite narrators I'm just going to read some of the other books that that he has narrated a uh, lot by Brian Washington, The Circle by Dave Eggers, Dear Martin by Nick Stone, What Strange Paradise, American War, Lovely War, Concrete Rose, Washington Black. Like he's narrated some of my favorite books. Um, he nar- narrates Colson Whitehead's books and Marlon James's books. And he, I think if you went into the audiobook without listening to the introduction, you could maybe think that this book was written in 2020 because of his narration and how he made mm-hmm. some of that stilted dialogue come to life with his voice work. 
Um, so I, I definitely enjoyed my reading experience more when I was listening to the great Dion Graham. Um, but I, I agree it was, this wasn't like a, like a passing for me where I'm like, oh, this is now like a, you know, favorite, favorite book. Um, I can see these webs of, oh, hi, Bingley. (laughs) He was under the bed (laughs) this whole time. Um, where I could see, you know, these webs of how it's influenced contemporary literature and and such. Um, I did enjoy La Fala. I do think at you know the last ten percent of the novel, like my heart was racing mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't happen with a lot of classics, and I enjoyed that propulsive experience. Um, but I I agree. Like I I appreciated the writing more. I also, I think I, I enjoyed the book more because of its length. It was 130 pages. And even when like dialogue is stilted or you're like, this isn't as awesome as I wanted it to be, you know, when, <laughs> when it's short, you could still sink into it and settle in and know that you're not committing, you know, to like a middle March length. <laughs> book, right? Um, so I think overall my experience with it was really enjoyable, but I think that was, I have to thank Dion Graham a lot for, for that. Um, yeah, but it is more scholarly than like, oh, I'm losing myself in this book. Yeah, definitely. And there's nothing wrong with that. I like those reading experiences. Sure. So I enjoyed reading this. And like you said, it's short. There really is something so satisfying about reading a short classic because you're like, yeah, I read a classic this <laughs> yeah. month. And it, it was just short and sweet. And like you got so much out of it in so few pages. And I mean, that is one of my favorite things when authors can pack so much into so few pages. I think that expresses such talent. And totally. this, I mean, the setting is kind of sprawling in this book, right? I mean, like that sentence that I just read, it takes us from Africa to Europe, to Europe, to America, back to Europe. And then, you know, discussions of Africa. I mean, it is just sort of this sprawling discussion of of place and identity. And then the descriptions of Marseille are so detailed and good and I, I very visceral I really felt like I was there mm-hmm. um and I've I've been to Marseille but not I don't think I've been uh in Quayside like the key, yeah exactly <laughs> right? yeah yeah um I wasn't uh dancing at the nightclubs or anything but um <laughs> I yeah I love when you can get that in such so few pages it was great I agree all right well let's um Hopefully, you know, if you have not, if you didn't read along with us, now you have some some general uh, background information about this this book. Let's share a little bit of a, a summary. I would say this is not going to be spoilery summary, and then we'll let you know when we we have to talk about the ending. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll let you know when we get there. But um, this book is about a character named Lafala. As we mentioned, he was born in Africa, then moved to Europe, then came to America. He was on a ship to America. He was stowing away um, on his way to New York, and he was discovered and kind of locked in like a, a what what kind of room? They make it a bathroom, specific, a water closet. in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. 
and his legs freeze. Um, he gets frostbite and just his legs are not salvageable. And when he gets to New York, his legs have to be amputated. And this is particularly devastating because he was a, a dancer. I mean, he loved to dance mm-hmm. and, and a traveler and, you know, all of that, like thematically, but also just to our character, this idea of his um, mobility, his joy being kind of robbed, robbed of him. Um, so, but he then went, wins a huge lawsuit against a the shipping company, and he returns to Marseille with all of this money, and he begins a relationship with a prostitute who's named Aslima. And he kind of re-begins this relationship to get back at her because she had um, slept with him and, and robbed him, and he kind of has, like, a vengeance plan, but then things start to really develop between them and I guess I guess that's a good enough setup to to start with yeah I think I mean and that was yeah that was a perfect plot summary I think if we get into talking about the character uh, we can talk a little bit more about Lafala and how this money assuages his feelings about losing his legs throughout the novel he does uh, often express sort of missing being able to dance, missing his mobility, but the money and the wealth that comes to him does a lot for him that kind of makes him think like, okay, well, maybe this life isn't so bad and maybe that wasn't such a horrible sacrifice for me. Well, yeah, let's just dig into this because I, I think thematically that's like one of the most interesting parts of this book is this sort of commentary... I mean, because the book really does deal with explicitly with Marxism and ec- economics, like it's it's fascinating this kind of trade. Obviously, like right, this wasn't like a a willing trade he made, but within the the context of the book, the idea that uh, money actually gives you more mobility than your legs, your physical mm-hmm. legs, um, is like a, <laughs> a flashing beacon of a theme and you know honestly like seemingly at least within the context of this quite true yeah he I mean granted he goes back to sort of the um working class part of Marseille so he he isn't you know reaching different levels of society necessarily sure yeah but for his society, for his social group, he is now treated like a king. I mean, mm-hmm. granted, there are plots against him. There are people trying to get his money, but he is revered where maybe he would have been reviled. Or uh, if he returned without his legs and no money, then you have to think, well, what would have happened to him then? Mm-hmm. He wouldn't mm-hmm. have people hanging all over him or trying to befriend him or he would have been a social outcast compared to mm-hmm. what he what he is when he returns with this wad of cash. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's also this element of because he went to America and got the money, mm-hmm. there's like this element of 
ooh, you, you went to America and you got the money. Like, why didn't you stay there and get more money in America? There's this commentary about the mobility of, you know, where you can move in society in America as a black man versus where you can go in this area of Marseille versus he talks about going back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And a lot That's of his goal, right? Throughout yeah. the book, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the characters are like, "Why would you go back there? There is more that you can do in America. You can move up higher in America. The white people will keep you down in Africa, like through colonization. Mm-hmm. You are not going to have this upward mobility that you might have had. I I just think the economics across continents, when discussed like that, are fascinating too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I completely agree. And once again, like now as we're talking about this, it's I'm continuing to marvel at how much he does in so so few pages. Another thing that I appreciate about this book is the way that he is using the loss of Lafala's legs to kind of talk about these thematic concepts, but. I think that, you know, to the Claude McKay was not a uh, did not have a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to the best of his ability, he tried to capture what that might feel like. And this is based on a it's not based on a true story, but it was inspired by the real event of a of a stowaway who lost his legs, although this person did not go on to like win any money from the shipping company. And I think we have to wonder what became of of him um oh he did though oh he did Um, he did but it wasn't as public of a case that's what i'm did return to marseille with his prosthetic legs and that's right more money so yeah i mean this this does reflect a real stowaway story Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and i think that that is something that i completely agree with some of our articles that we're referring to about the how modern this feels like I'm not I I can't recall another classic that tries to really capture the idea of disability and how that intersects with other aspects of of identity like class and race mm-hmm. um and I found that to be really really compelling um and just some you know just like an over overlooked story or just something that you know we don't see in 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 books so much and and it's it's like if you were to read the classics you might think that like people with disabilities didn't exist for all of this history and here we have that centered in this book yeah he's not pitied mm-hmm. that's the big thing that's that's missing here that you might expect in a classic because it is in other classics, right? Mm-hmm. He is not a pitiable character. He is, like I said, he is really revered mm-hmm. um, by the people in his circle. And he doesn't really experience a lot of self-pity either. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, it's, it, that I think is is the big difference here and what feels more modern. And like McKay is really, really doing something here doing something modern and contemporary and intersectional, like you said. I So I think that we should talk a little bit about some of the other characters here. Yes. Mostly Aslima. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
so she has um, she has a relationship with a pimp. Um, did you? How did the audiobook pronounce his name? Titan or Titian or? Uh, Titan, I think. Titan. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she also has this relationship, a rival relationship with another prostitute, Lafleur, mm-hmm. and so. That sort of those relationships influence what happens with La Fala and and these people. The romance in Marseille, um, <laughs> which is just a really interesting title because there's not a lot that's romantic. And it about went through this, a but... lot of changes. I feel like <laughs> yeah. McKay was probably, if he had his way, romance in Marseille is Wouldn't not be the, the title. <laughs> title that we would have landed on here. Yeah. The romance in Marseille, and it's even reflected a little bit on the cover here is between La Fala and Aslima. And so mm-hmm. I think it's important that we talk about her her character. What did you think of Aslima? I don't feel like she was as round of a character as La Fala. Sure. Um, she had more of a tragic figure, kind of. But she also, like, she had more agency than I was expecting. Um, and she had, I guess, you know, some more complexity as we like are kind of introduced to her, not as a full villain, but as, you know, somebody who has betrayed La Fala. And then, you know, when he returns, that relationship evolves and, and, and changes in an interesting way. Um, I thought the, this scene towards the end where, um, he tells her that he will take her with him to Africa and they're going to do this and they're going to be together. And she just has this lightness about her was really beautiful because I, I think probably what influences her character a lot is her own knowledge that like her life, she's stuck in mm-hmm. this existence. And then when she sees a way out, we see a different side of her character. I thought I, I really enjoyed that aspect. I agree with the introduction that the book, in spite of its intersectionality and you know levels of modernity, remains fairly misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that mostly with Lafleur, but but still with Aslima. But um, yeah, what what did you think of her? Yeah, I agree, but I do think there is a little bit of commentary on gender around sure. her character. Yeah. And the mobility that is afforded to Lafala compared to Aslima. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. talks about how no matter if Titan and she get married, she will always be a prostitute. If she has a baby, it will be known as a whore's son. No matter where she goes in society, her past will always follow mm-hmm. her and she'll always be a prostitute. So I think that commentary says something about gender and the mobility afforded to her compared to the mobility afforded to the other characters in the novel. Um, I think there's some commentary about when Lafala talks about going back to Africa and bringing her along, there's some commentary about what her life will be and how her life will change because of that. And, you know, what, what's to be expected um, of her as a wife there versus what's to be expected of her 
uh, as a woman in Marseille. And so I, I do think there's some interesting commentary there, but it's side commentary. It's not, it's not core to the novel by any means, but I did find that interesting. Yeah. He's not disregarding gender as an important aspect of, of identity within this community either for sure. What did you think of the rivalry between Aslima and Lafleur? Because it did seem like that was where some of the misogyny lied, and to me, I just kept thinking this just doesn't just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that was maybe one of the things that could have been like fleshed out a little bit more. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't make sense to me. It felt like a very standard. Like, oh, there are two women. In like similar roles, they must hate each other, right. <laughs> um, for sure. I I I think that that's how how I read that. It also felt like a plot device because their rivalry um, and Lafleur's kind of desire to sabotage Aslim is what like part of what unravels the the whole their whole plan, um, Aslima and, and Lafleur's whole plan. Whenever something feels like more of a plot device than like based in the authentic characters, it feels like a little shoulder shruggy. <laughs> yeah. And Lafleur is queer. She has a mm-hmm. steady relationship with a Greek woman, as yes. she is described. And they like go to the movies together. And mm-hmm. and so you would think, well, OK, if she's maybe happily in this other relationship, what does she care about the other relationships that are going on but it really is just this rivalry seemingly over money and power I suppose and so I don't know should we kind of get to how this influences the end of the novel yeah let let's do that so if you have not read and you want the end to be a surprise go ahead and and skip ahead we'll put a timestamp in our show notes to where we get into our our pairings um but i mean we both i think read the introduction before the book and knew the end <laughs> that was was coming and i still felt like my heart was racing getting yeah. to the end so you also can just listen and then you know yeah it w- i don't think it'll ruin the end for you so um all right do you want to talk a little bit about that unraveling <laughs> yeah so towards the end here we have Lafala and Aslima and he sets things up so that she's taken care of with some money he actually does leave Marseille mm-hmm. um, but he leaves behind some some money for her and of course uh, Titan is incredibly jealous and goes into a fury. Lafleur has set some things up, has written several notes to people to confuse things and mix things up. And as we sort of get to this ending crescendo, we're like, yeah, crescendo oh, is a great way to describe <laughs> something it. Something horrible is going to happen. Um, and Aslima is basically, she's like lying down and she's depressed and because he doesn't tell her he's leaving without her yeah (laughs) he just walks and leaves yes but grant i mean (laughs) he does think that she's gonna pull one over on him again yes so kind of fair (laughs) yeah yeah 
But she wasn't going to. She really did have this love for La Fala. She really was looking forward to this different life. Uh, but basically, she says uh, it would be better if you just killed me. Uh, and so Titan does. He shoots her. Yeah. And, oh, man. And the that scene is so... It's so intense, even though, even knowing what is going to happen, how Tata thinks like, I don't even want to kill her right now. I want her to get that money for me Uh first, but he like can't overcome his anger at her for, you know, choosing someone else and being so apathetic towards him, Um, which is really interesting because money drives so much of this but in the end it is more those emotions that Mm -hmm. that lead to this climactic end um and before we pressed record you kind of compared this ending to to passing and it it did remind me that because of just the way it cuts off Mm -hmm. at the end right like and the the reader is left to consider the ramifications of this event and how everything unfolds thereafter yeah there's no reflection afterwards there's no epilogue to like catch up with the characters and see how everyone responded to this violent act or you know see if Lafala ever learned about it what did he think or what happened to the money that he left for Aslima it just ends and that last yeah read the last the last sentence because it's just it's so so brutal It is. So just trigger warning, because it is like really, this is very violent. She threw up her hands like a bird of prey about to swoop down upon a victim and pitched headlong to the door. He shot the remaining bullets into her body, cursing and calling upon hell to swallow her soul. The end. That's it. (laughs) Yes. I mean, yeah, it, it is really, it leaves you again like your heart races the whole time and then Mm -hmm. you're just kind of left with this aftershock um which you know i i think is very intentional with how he wants you to feel upon closing the book i also just thought it was really fascinating that once lafala leaves that's it we don't see him again Mm -hmm. either um and so we we end the book with with aslima in this room in marseille and I guess that surprised me too because it really did feel like more LaFala's story. And yet McKay chooses to end end his story here. Hmm. So violently. Did you think that there was anything metaphorical about Aslima's death? That's what I kept wondering when I closed the book. And I haven't figured it out yet. But do we think that there's something metaphorical about her dying? Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that, you know, I think it in some ways kind of mirrors the, the beginning with that sense of stuckness with LaFala in his, in his hospital bed, kind of reflecting on the loss of his, his legs. And it feels fitting that even though LaFala does have have so much agency and and freedom in some ways because of his financial circumstance he does get to leave 
we still end the book with the feeling of stuckness. Mm. Um, and I mean, ex- to the extreme with this violent death, but even like within the confines of a small little room and her like lunging towards the door and not making it to towards, towards the door. And so I, I think maybe there's something about, you know, La Fala in this like, quote unquote lucky windfall of financial mm. gain being the exception rather than the rule um, that you know his his ability to leave we don't even as readers get to follow him as he leaves mm. we are still stuck as readers as well and and every other character within the text is 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 where they started Mm, that's so smart I think we should end there and go to pairings <laughs> before we press record saying this is probably going to be a short discussion and I feel like whenever we say that Chelsea we actually is. end up yeah and it, it, it never is we actually when we I think when we come to a book discussion with more questions than answers mm. we end up talking a lot longer and I always really enjoy these conversations I love it okay Let's talk about pairings. We each have two pairings for today, partly because this book is so short and so unique and and different and new. Uh, it's it's a new classic. And so we chose two books that uh, we think connect to this one and would be quick, short reads if you want to continue reading along some similar themes. So Sarah... What is the first book that you've paired with Romance in Marseille by Claude McKay? All right. Um, my first one, both of mine are, are new releases. And I apologize because my first one does not come out until July 5th. But I, I think many of our readers will want to pre-order it. It is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And... Um, I don't want to, this is one where I don't want to say too much about like all of the little things that pair so well with this book because the way Gabrielle Zevin tells this story, it unfolds in just the right way and I don't want to get a, get ahead of ourselves or spoil anything. Um, but this book um, does deal so much with intersectionality, particularly intersectionality of um, disability, race, gender, and economic status and power. And it's a completely different story, but that those intersections of identity and theme just really hit me as connecting with Romance in Marseille. So um, a little setup for Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. This book is about Sam and Sadie. And at the very beginning of the book, Sam and Sadie, they're both living in Boston. Um, Sam sees Sadie in a um, in a subway station and he hasn't seen her in eight years. He calls out to her. She pretends she doesn't hear him for a little bit <laughs> and you wonder why is she pretending she doesn't hear him finally he says some like little inside joke that forces her to turn around and they reconnect after eight years and you learn that they met as children in a um, hospital ward and 
I'll let Gabrielle Zevin explain why each of them was there when you pick up this book, but um, begins in in a hospital similarly to Romance in in Marseille. Um, And through these kind of alternating timelines, you see Sam and Sadie's history as children and friends together and their histories of their, their families separately from each other. And then in the current timeline, they rehabilitate their friendship and they start making video games together. They're both gamers. Sadie is a computer programmer. Sam is an artist. And they kind of combine their powers and they create beautiful games. Um, and so the book explores art and creativity and passion as well and how... Um, how kind of business and friendship and love create tension when all together. Um, but also some truly beautiful things come out of that, that tension. So I just, I, I mean, the book is filled with classic books references. The title is taken from of course, Macbeth's soliloquy. Um, but I, I think it, it, it really thematically pairs so well with Romance and Marseille because of all it's doing about with identity and passion and love and money and power. And I'm really glad that I read these books basically simultaneously. I'm not sure I would have made this connection otherwise, but it was so evident to me. And I, I hope that a lot of people pick up tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow in July and if you do, and you also read Romance in Marseille with us, we can talk more about some of the small details that also align. That's such an unexpected pairing. I love it. Yeah, I was I was excited when that one came to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chelsea, what's your first pairing? All right, I specifically sought out some French novels in translation because I just really wanted to capture the feeling of reading romance in Marseille, which felt very French to me. And so this first one is a novella in translation. It is At Night All Blood is Black. It is by David Diop. And this novella in translation is about a Senegalese soldier who was drafted for the French army in World War I. And after a battle, he finds himself unable to commit a mercy killing. His friend is severely wounded and he begs him and begs him and begs him, just kill me and put me out of my misery. But the soldier is unable to do so. And this decision and his inability to act for his friend just haunts him. So to avenge his friend's death, Every night he sneaks into German territory and finds a blue-eyed, blonde-haired soldier to kill. He severs his hand and returns to base camp. So at first, everyone at camp, all of these French soldiers, just are kind of like, oh man, this guy's a badass, and they revere him, and they think that he's, um, you know, awesome for going and killing the German soldiers like this. But then... Uh, eventually, as they kind of figure out what he's doing, rumors start to go around that he's possessed, and this novella turns to sort of darkness and a little bit of mystical things and hypnotic madness and and violence. So I 
thought that this connected to Romance and Marseille for a couple of reasons. First of all, just the length, the novella length, I think, pairs so well. But also, this is about colonization and exploitation of the French army, um, specifically going to African young men and basically poaching them for military service and tossing them into a war that they should have had nothing to do with because of colonization. So that's a big part of it. World War I itself influenced so much of the Harlem Renaissance and Harlem Renaissance writers. And um, yeah, there's just really artistic, beautiful writing here. It's a quick read and it's a novel in translation. So this is At Night, All Blood is Black by David Diop. Mm, that sounds that sounds great. My next pairing, another new release, although this one this one is out already. Um, I have not read this one, so I think it will make a good pairing. But if you've read it, let me know if I'm right. Um, this is "You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty" by Akweke Amezi. And I, um, I think that, um, Akweke Amezi's writing will pair well with Claude McKay's because it's just so lush and evocative, but they also, um, can really be quite efficient with their their writing. This book is longer, it's le- but it's less than 300 pages. And what I also love about Amezi is they really are exploring genre in, in many different ways. And this book is their first romance novel. Now, I believe this is a true romance novel, not like Romance in Marseille. Um, but again, I have not read it, so... I'm going on what the publisher is, is telling us here. Um, but I'm going to read the, the, a little bit of the cover copy, and then I'll share some of what I thought might make this a good pairing in addition to the writing. So um, Faye wants to learn how to be alive again. It's been five years since the accident that killed the love of her life, and she's almost a new person now, an artist with her own studio and sharing a brownstone apartment with her ride-or-die best friend Joy, who insists it's time for Faye to increase, to ease back into the dating scene. Faye isn't ready for anything serious, but a steamy encounter at a rooftop party cascades into a whirlwind summer she could have never imagined. A luxury trip to a tropical island, decadent meals in the glamorous home of a celebrity chef, and a major curator who wants to launch her art career. Um, Then goes on to say that she's even dating somebody, but she actually has eyes for somebody else. And the book becomes about a transgressive romantic relationship. And I think that's really what hit me as being a great pairing for romance in, in Marseille. Um, the, the kind of embodied love and sensuality um, that both books seem like they're going to be exploring and that idea of like, you know, your heart and your body wanting what it what it wants, even if that feels transgressive to the time or place or, or circumstance. So again, I, I I believe you made a fool of death with your 
With Your Beauty is a true romance novel. I don't think it has the heart-stopping, tragic ending <laughs> that Romance in Marseille does. Um, but uh, so, of course, in that way, it could be quite different. But the that theme jumped out to me as something overlapping here. And I think I'm excited to read this one. I've loved Amezi's other work. And I'm excited to read it and see if I pick up on any more connections between Amezi and McKay. I'm really excited to read that one. Mm-hmm. It sounds like such a good summer book. So yes. seasonally appropriate yes (laughs) (laughs) okay last pairing this one I haven't read but the description just sounds so so perfect for romance in Marseille I don't know if I'll get to read it soon but if anyone does I'm gonna need them to report back so this is a country for dying this is another French novel in translation the author is Abdella Taya and according to their bio Abdelatiya is the first Moroccan author to be publicly out as gay. Um, and this book is about two prostitutes in Paris. One of them is Moroccan and one of them is in the process of transitioning and is exploring their womanhood. Now, I do not believe that the author is trans, so I don't know about the representation here, um, but it is a central part of the novel. Um, but I just can't speak to that representation, so I just wanted to clarify that. But here is the description that just really sold me on this being the perfect pairing for Romance in Marseille. The world of A Country for Dying is a world of dreamers, of lovers, for whom the price of dreaming is one they must pay with their flesh. The author writes, so many people find themselves in the same situation. It is our destiny to pay with our bodies for other people's future. Oh, well, that just sounds perfect. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mic drop. We're done. End of episode. Um, No, but this is a short, intense book. There are post-colonial themes galore here. It is about the exploration of a national identity versus a personal identity, of transitioning your identity. Um, And yeah, I mean, that line again, paying with bodies for other people's future. Just... It sounds so thematically perfect for romance in Marseille. So again, that is A Country for Dying by Abdella Taya, and that's a French novel in translation. All right, Chelsea. Well, I've I've been getting a little emotional because this is the last time we are going to record a main feed episode for a little while. I know. But we'll be on Patreon. We'll be recording bonus episodes together, some separately, some together, and... I'm really excited about coming back in the fall with some exciting content. And so it is a little bit bittersweet. We're taking a break in June and July from the main feed, but it's just so we can shore up all of our energy and creativity for a big return with some exciting new things for you. So yeah, um, there are still plenty of places to find us. We will still be at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram. We will still be in our newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com we are on patreon that is where you can really get the good content um 
over our hiatus, we'll be discussing Lonesome Dove, we'll be talking about summer reading, and previewing what we have for fall first there, of course. So patreon.com slash novel pairings is the place to go for your summer classics content. Yes, all summer we'll be reading Lonesome Dove with our patrons, um, and then we'll be back in August with two episodes about Lonesome Dove, followed by some exciting changes and enhancements to the podcast coming in September, so we really can't wait. Um, As always, thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music, and in August, we'll be back to discuss Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.